This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. State interventions designed to fix local school districts have had a mixed record nationwide. Generally speaking, when states take over local districts, they find it easier to curtail corruption and improve management practices than to lift student achievement. But an exception to the overall pattern may have emerged in Lawrence, Massachusetts, a district serving highly disadvantaged students that was taken over by the State Department of Education in 2012. That seems to be so successful that the receiver, the person who was in charge of the uh, Lawrence District takeover, Jeffrey Riley, has recently emerged as one of the three finalists for Massachusetts prestigious Commissioner of Elementary and secondary education position. Now, a just-released report by Beth Schuler, a postdoctoral student in Harvard's program on education policy and governance, suggests that Riley's approach in Lawrence has been really quite effective, both in managerial terms and in educational terms. And I'm very pleased today to have with me Beth Schuler uh, on the Education Exchange to discuss her uh, report that has just been released. So, Beth, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. So, Beth, why was Lawrence's public school system targeted for a turnaround in the first place? So, Lawrence had um, had a kind of record of low performance for um, many years, and the state had had, had its eye on Lawrence uh, over time. Um, in 2010, the, the state passed a law called the Achievement Gap Act that gave the state kind of increased um, authority to intervene and, and enact one of these state takeovers in the case of kind of persistent underperformance. So the state had sort of had a sign on Lawrence. This new law was passed that gave the state new authorities to, to act. And, um, you know, in that time period, so this is the 2010-2011 the school year, Lawrence was in the bottom five districts in the state in terms of its um, math and English language arts. Um, kind of proficiency ratings on the state assessments, and um, only about half of all Lawrence students were graduating within uh, four years. So kind of based on those um, performance results, um, the state, you know, placed the district into what's called receivership. But was, um, it, was this really the very bottom district then, or were there some other things besides that that might have been going on there? Yeah, so, I mean, the, the sort of official line is that it was really performance-based, but um, but there were, you know, some other signs of, of trouble um, in Lawrence. So there was kind of a uh, sort of widespread kind of public perception of um, dysfunction, mismanagement, and even um, corruption uh, among public officials at uh, the city level and also um, at the school district. Um, so there was the, the previous three superintendents had been fired for various allegations of, of mismanagement, for example. So, um, you know, some signs that there was kind of a lack of, of local capacity to really do much about that poor performance. So Jeffrey Riley was the receiver who was put in charge of the turnaround. Now, what specifically did he do? What, what was his overall strategy? Yeah, so there were kind of four key components of, of the strategy um, that, you know, was implemented in these early years. Uh, the first was an effort to increase school level, um, both autonomy and accountability, but he sort of did it in a differentiated way. So the schools got 
uh, different levels of autonomy based on their um, you know prior performance and kind of different levels of central office support. Second was an effort to um, extend learning time throughout the district um, in a variety of, of ways, including some special programs like these acceleration academies that gave students kind of an extra boost over vacation breaks. Um, the third component was an effort to improve uh, human capital throughout the district, so central office, principals, and teachers. And uh, they were particularly aggressive when it came to, to principals, so they replaced about half of all the principals in the first two years um, and actively replaced only about 10% of all the teachers, um, although there was kind of higher overall turnover um, on the teaching force. So that was number three, human capital. And then the fourth um, component was an effort to increase the use of data to drive instructional improvement. So it's, it's clear, I think, from your uh, report that uh, the management systems are, are uh, enhanced under the receiver. But what's the evidence that all this translated into higher student achievement? Sure. So um, some earlier work that, uh, that I've done with, um, with, with two co-authors, Joshua Goodman and, and David Deming, um, we, we basically use statewide data to compare the change for Lawrence students before and after the um, the receivership to the achievement for similar students in very similar districts outside of Lawrence, elsewhere in the state that were not experiencing turnaround over this period, uh, and we find that um, Lawrence students that these that these turnaround reforms uh, produced quite large. Um, gains in, in mathematics achievement for, for Lawrence students in, in particular, and then more modest gains in, um, in English language arts uh, after the first two years of, of the receivership. And then importantly, um, you know, we find that, that Lawrence is able to produce those gains without kind of slippage on sort of non-test outcomes, so things like attendance, mobility, uh, dropout, um, graduation among 12th graders. And, um, and even we find some evidence of kind of positive progress on grade progression among high school students. So some evidence that high schoolers are, are staying on track. Um, so there's not slippage in these other indicators, but there's not improvement either, is there? Yeah, at least not in the first couple of years. Um, so kind of no, uh, no effects either way. It's, it's sort of difficult to tell because essentially um, with these other outcomes, it's the, the sort of Trends prior to the takeover are, um, you know, a little bit less less clear and, and less comparable when you when you look at Lawrence versus the other um, districts in the state. And so, uh, although there are some signs of progress, we we we're sort of temp we temper our kind of claims about those outcomes um, just because the evidence is a little bit less clear than the than the test score uh, effects. So now, how about downstream? I mean, you say immediately there's some positive effects, but uh, it's now been five years out. Uh, Massachusetts' performance on the NAEP in the very recent years doesn't look quite as strong as it had been compared to other states. Um, is, is Lawrence closing the gap on other parts of the state, even if you can't do quite the precise analysis that you did immediately? Yeah, so um, the results look promising in terms of, you know, kind of continued progress in, in Lawrence, um, but it's a bit of a complicated question to answer, and part of that has to do with uh, the shift in, in the assessment from the MCAS to the 
uh, park and then back to, to MCAS 2.0. And so um, I'm working on kind of doing a, a more rigorous sort of deep dive uh, to help answer that question um, a lot more in a lot, you know, with a lot more precision. So stay tuned for the kind of long-term results. Okay, so that'll be interesting to follow. Now, they, exactly uh, why do you think the Lawrence story is a pretty positive story to tell. What, 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 was there something special about Lawrence or was there uh, something special about the strategy or, or uh, how, how, why, why is Lawrence standing out as compared to some of the other places around the country? Yeah, so I think um, Lawrence is unique for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, we've already touched on just the academic results, right? We have very few sort of positive proof points when it comes to uh, very low-performing districts making kind of dramatic improvements, um, especially those that are serving a really high concentration of, of disadvantaged students. So um, it's an encouraging kind of case in that sense. But the other piece is that, you know, these um, interventions, especially in the context of sort of state takeover, um, but even sort of district-wide turnaround efforts, tend to um, really be surrounded by a lot of um, kind of political controversy, rancor, and sort of public dissatisfaction. Um, and so the Lawrence story is, is uh, you know, one reason I think it's so interesting is because there, there just don't seem to be the sort of same signs of um, public resistance and dissatisfaction and, and quite a few more signs of kind of um, uh, a positive sort of response from uh, key kind of stakeholders in, in Lawrence. So um, why do you so, think that, why was that the case, that they, the resistance was much less in Lawrence than you might have expected? Yeah, so this, this new um, working paper, that's sort of the question I'm trying to answer is, is why wasn't this, you know, more controversial? And so the, the um, findings, there's sort of two categories. One is around sort of contextual factors. So, um, you know, both in terms of the local context in Lawrence and the statewide um, accountability system, which kind of gave leaders uh, a lot of autonomy and flexibility to um, enact uh, reforms uh, unilaterally. Um, so there are some things about Lawrence that are different than some of these other cases of takeover and turnaround that, you know, we can't sort of rule out uh, the possibility that, um, you know, because Lawrence is, you know, has a particular size, has a particular kind of makeup, the sort of... Um, local um, sort of uh, organized labor uh, landscape is, looks different than uh, so it does you mentioned the, you mentioned the uh, the labor situation the, were the unions opposed did they fight the the takeover or exactly how did they position themselves on this issue yeah it's, it's interesting so the union um, you know the union was initially opposed and, and does oppose the concept of receivership itself um, but essentially, came to view receivership in Lawrence as, as inevitable and made a very conscious decision to um, sort of jump on board and collaborate rather than um, either take a, a more oppositional stance. So there were sort of policy-based disagreements between union, the union leaders and the, uh, Riley and his team um, over the, you know, the turnaround period. But um, overall, kind of relations and communication seemed to improve um, the Riley and his team actually gave the union a school to, to, to co-manage um, in the district, and so there was quite a bit of collaboration. And even um, Randy Weingarten, 
at one point the the president of the of the national uh, AFT um, sort of cited Lawrence as as one of one of her kind of examples of uh, union district collaboration. So um, you know more sort of uh, union uh, involvement than. Uh, you might expect or that you might see in other cases of takeover and turnaround. Well, is this to Roddy's credit? Is, was he particularly uh, imaginative in finding a way of working with the unions instead of getting into a brawl? Yeah, it seems like, you know, so the, the sort of, you know, I mentioned there are kind of two buckets of findings. One was really around the context and then as, in terms of explaining the, the overall response. And then the second bucket is really this idea of a kind of uh, third way approach to um, uh, to leading this this reform. So, um, and I think that was that kind of overarching concept is helpful to think about how um, how Riley approached the the union and other stakeholders um, in Lawrence in general. So, you know, broadly speaking, political scientists think of of the, a third way as a sort of political position that seeks to kind of reconcile right wing and left wing political perspectives. Um, now, in education, policy disagreements don't typically fall neatly into tr- traditional sort of um, lines, left-right lines. Uh, but, you know, recent debates, especially in the context of district turnaround, um, have really been marked by kind of polarized disputes between um, kind of two groups that you can crudely think of as sort of education reformers and then a more kind of traditionalist um, crowd. And so... Riley and his team, in, in embracing this kind of third-way approach, um, you know, this was really an effort to kind of avoid false choices between seemingly incompatible preferences of the kind of education reform audience and the more traditionalist um, audience. And so can, can you give us an example, Beth? What's, what's an example of that third strategy? That's... Sure, sure. So, um, you know, Interestingly, um, the majority of schools in Lawrence stayed under district management, but um, a small number of them were handed over to uh, outside operators, and those outside operators were, you know, really diverse. So they ranged from charter management organizations um, to, as I mentioned, the local teachers' union, which really showed a kind of willingness to uh, work with folks on on all sides of kind of major um, education policy debates. Um, the interestingly, the charter managed schools um, didn't actually convert to charter status, so um, they were managed by CMOs, but they retained uh, neighborhood-based assignments. So there, there was no choice um, in Lawrence, and you know they had a unionized teaching force, and that was you know that actually seemed to help kind of address many of the um, concerns of the charter critics in Lawrence. Um, you know, th- those folks were worried that, you know, the charters weren't taking the same students, for example. Um, so they, they, that helped to address their concerns, but also to, you know, it, embrace and kind of work with some of the, the resources that the charter management groups um, could bring to, to bear. So those are a couple of examples. So are, the, uh, are there lots of charters in Lawrence? Or are they, uh, are they uh, attracting a lot of students away from the district? Not, not too many. Um, and, and one thing that I find is that the um, reforms did not seem to kind of increase student mobility or change student mobility in, in one way or, or another. So there are not, a, a, how many charter schools are there in the Lawrence area? 
there's just a small handful of charter schools that are separate from the kind of Lawrence public school system uh, that, that I have studied. Um, and so, but within the Lawrence public schools, there are a couple of schools that are managed by charter operators, but not um, actually charter schools, if that makes sense. So, so the, the charter school, it's not like it is in, in some places like the District of Columbia or, or Philadelphia, where there's a, a very sizable charter presence, and, and then you get a lot of uh, enrollment uh, uh, shifting uh, that can complicate uh, things. And maybe that's one of the advantages that Lawrence had here. Exactly. It's it's the vast majority of students are in traditional public schools, um, and not even in schools that are managed by charters. Okay, so I'm going to uh, end up with this question: uh, as as interesting as your example is, can can turnaround uh, really be a national strategy for school reform? Uh, even if it works here and in some other cases, are there enough talented leaders to really turn around schools wherever it's needed? Um, uh, are the conditions going to be as favorable as this more generally? I mean, how do, how do you generalize from what you're learning in, in Lawrence? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I think to your point about leadership, um, I think that that is a major concern, right, the, this, this issue of a sort of limited um, uh, capacity and limited sort of pool of talented leaders. One interesting finding from the study was that the um, uh, many of the state-level folks I spoke with argued that the Achievement Gap Act in Massachusetts, which is a law that gives the state the authority to take over in the case of low performance, um, it gives the, the state-appointed receiver, you know, who in this case was Jeff Riley, um, pretty expansive authorities to change district-wide policy, including the ability to alter portions of the collective bargaining agreement, um, increase, you know, like learning time throughout the district. And so those state-level leaders argued that um, by offering um, candidates uh, for, you know, for the leadership roles in, in, in Lawrence, those new authorities, they were able to attract leaders that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to attract to uh, to work in these contexts. So I think, you know, um, one you know one read of this study, you, you know, you might you might the skeptic might say, you know, isn't this just a case of a superstar leader that we can't replicate? But another, uh, you know, I think my findings actually point to some replicable state level policies that could. Um, potentially help states as they're thinking about their accountability systems could help states attract um, quality leaders to work on some of these really important problems. And one of them is, is to give them enough scope so they can actually do something. Yeah, both at the district level and then, you know, district leaders in Lawrence also gave increased kind of school level autonomy to school leaders with supports to help them kind of uh, use that new autonomy effectively. But you know, give give folks more autonomy to kind of make the changes that they believe they need to make in order to improve student outcomes. Well, this is a fascinating case study, uh, Beth. I've been speaking with Beth Schuler, a postdoctoral student in the Harvard Program of Education Policy and Governance, who's going on to a uh, university position at the uh, University of Virginia. Uh, congratulations, Beth, on your new position. Uh, this is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. Uh, thank you, Beth, for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you, Beth. Uh, this is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson once again. Please join me every Monday 
at noon when the podcast for the week will be released.